0: Hey everybody, welcome along to another edition of the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Timken. I'm Aaron Noonan down the other end of the phone line. Well, it's not really a phone line, it's a computer line, yeah, no, it's not a computer line either. Either way, I'm looking at Will Dale, he's looking at me and Will, we have got another great edition of the V8 Sleuth Podcast with plenty of questions and answers. But before we roll into them, what was your big takeaway from last weekend in motor racing, whether it be two wheels or four wheels from the weekend? Uh,
1: expect the unexpected. Certainly if MotoGP is anything to suggest, I don't think anyone could have picked that
0: podium. No, it uh, would have been quite an interesting uh, payout if you had uh, <laughs> three of those on your uh, on your predictor in the week leading up. But I think the other thing it taught us too is that uh, Mercedes Formula One cars don't like heat.
1: No, no, not at all. Definitely, that was also an unexpected result. And for the um, statistically and numerically aligned among our listeners
0: very unusual that vehicle number 33 won both those races yeah it was 33 on verstappen 33 on the bikes was it moto and moto 2 that both moto won? 2 as well correct yes oh, we love a stat here we've got plenty yeah. of questions that are stat related we'll, um, we'll we'll bowl into them um because we've got plenty as per usual themes and topics are wide and varied as per normal in the League podcast thanks everybody for uh, your feedback too on the Scott McLaughlin episode, uh, plenty of great feedback, plenty of interesting things that he spoke about that he probably hasn't stopped to think about uh, for quite some time. Uh, and I guess now we should announce who the podcast is for next week, don't you reckon? Uh, it's
1: everyone's favourite race car driver slash TV host and gold Logie winner, Grant Daniel.
0: Yep. It is the the little man of Australian motor racing and of television and Uh, Yes, gold Logie winner a couple of years ago on the Gold Coast. I was in the room the night that he won it. Oh, really? Yeah, that was the night that I went to the Logies. Oh, here you go. Yeah. I was going to mention that we got up on stage to accept the Logie for best sporting coverage for the Bathurst 1000 before he won his gold Logie, but uh, I won't because really in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter and I still feel like How the hell did I ever get to go to the Logies? No matter. Let's move on. First question, Will. Matthew Lindus. Ooh, chassis question. We like these ones. Uh, What chassis were the... Oh, this is interesting. The Owen Parkinson and Trevor Crittenden VS Commodores that failed to qualify for Bathurst in 1990 and 2000, and do any photos of either car exist from those events? Uh, I didn't think the Owen Parkinson car ran at Bathurst that year, did it? No, it didn't. That was the ex-Bathurst-winning Perkins car. Uh, It might have been entered, but it most certainly didn't run. But the car that didn't qualify uh, was the product car, Phil Ward and uh, Bob Pearson's car. I think Phil Ward crashed it. So uh, that was the one car that didn't make the uh, the cut from pre-qualifying and and got culled.
1: There's one I'd forgotten about, that there was pre-qualifying for the Bathurst 1000.
0: Yeah, uh, not for very long and not many cars got booted out of it in that year. But uh, the Crittenden car, though, that, that had a long history as well. Yeah, that was originally Terry
1: Finnegan's VN Commodore. You remember that? The um, Blue Food Town Commodore from early in the Group A years? Yeah. Yep. Um, and there are photos of that. In fact, there's a photo of that in a publication we did a couple of years ago, our Holden at Bathurst book. Um, I believe that's a Chevron photo, is it not?
0: Yeah, I think the one of the Crittenden car was because it only ran very, very briefly in that pre-qualifying session, uh, I think it was Wednesday of race week back then. So uh, our files didn't have one, but luckily uh, the guys at Chevron did and our Holden at Bathurst book is a sellout. You, we don't have any more copies of that book to sell. And I don't know too many stockists that have got any of them left. We did two and a half thousand of those books. So uh, Matthew, you might have to jump on uh, online and have a bit of a dig around and see if you can find yourself a copy of that. But if you're a Holden fan in... Um, You love your Holden's no matter what. Well, it's time to do the book plug. Racing the Line, the Illustrated History of Holden Australian Motorsport. Uh, I think we're going to get stock, Will, from our printer next week. So we'll be able to dispatch the pre-order copies and the wholesale copies. If you haven't ordered a copy, it's 400 pages. It's packed with pictures and words. Uh, It really has got a bit of everything for everyone. If you're into Holden's, jump on our website, uh, bookshop.vhsleuth.com. Order yourself a copy. A good one for Father's Day or Christmas or an upcoming birthday or just to treat yourself during these COVID times. If you're locked down in Melbourne, uh, you've got another five weeks to uh, read this book. There's eighty thousand words. That's about fifteen thousand a week. That's probably doable. Yeah, just pace yourself. Yeah, yeah. There's, pl- there's plenty there. It's, yeah. it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, that's right.
1: Well, it was when we wrote it,
0: and yes, it was. Uh, we got there eventually, so that was all good. Yeah.
1: Uh, more questions. Next question from Tyson Blum. I have an idea for a podcast, the things teams got away with that were later found to be illegal, a pushing the boundaries episode of the podcast. What do you reckon?
0: Why do do I get a feeling that we need legals to clear anything like this? Uh,
1: I don't don't think that'll be the issue. I think getting people to actually talk on the record about the stuff that they got away with that no one ever found out about would be the bigger problem.
0: Depends about the statute of limitations really, doesn't it? But uh, I mean, there's been plenty of uh, things proven over the years plenty of things rumored uh there's probably enough topic content there to cover off a podcast somewhere along the line getting names attached to stories would probably be the most uh, difficult part of the question but you never know it's one that we'll put in the memory bank uh dennis bruce uh, he said hi guys possible to do a book or a magazine on the technical evolution of v8 engines in supercars so uh dating back to touring cars the 351s and 308s from the group c days five liter v8 supercars uh Stuff like the Perkins, Holden V8, the Beat the Chev's and whatever else they're running now. He reckons it'd make for an interesting read. I think it would, but I don't think it would appeal to enough people to justify doing. Thoughts? No, I agree. It'd be
1: a very interesting book. And I think with with certainly a very exciting release, upcoming release that was announced by us last week, there might be a few technical details creep into that one that reference some of the things that Dennis asked about. But, yeah, I think, um, yeah, note note the idea down.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to get some content. Uh, I know he's uh, mentioned about the Perkins Holden V8. That'll be clearly a big part of our Perkins Engineering Cars History book, which if you haven't caught up with the news, uh, we announced last week that in 2021 we're teaming up with Jack and Larry Perkins to release the official ultimate Perkins Engineering car history book. So it'll be along the lines of the DJR car book that we did uh, this year, limited number, uh, all numbered, and they'll all be hand signed by Larry Perkins. So uh, really looking forward to getting our teeth stuck into that one in the back end of this year and then uh, into next year. Uh, David List, at the last Supercars event at City Motorsport Park, 888 never got onto the podium. When was the last time that 888 missed out on a podium finish in a multi-race weekend? Have you been checking the database for your answer, Will? I haven't. It's actually not as long ago as you might Think it would be because you
1: remember just twelve months ago. Feels a long time ago. Triple mm. um, Eight were in a bit of a form slump and they were struggling with new spring rules and this, that, and the other thing. And it was actually the bend last year where um, Shane van Gisbergen finished sixth in both races and Jamie Wincup finished eleventh and fifth. So yeah. no podiums that weekend.
0: Not that far back in terms of uh, when you might have thought that they hadn't been uh, on the podium. Uh, Tim Irving with another question. We're going to keep punching through them because there's a whole pile of them and we want to get to as many of them as we can. We love a Utes question, V8 Utes. <laughs> stuff. Uh, he says, I'd love to know more about what happened to the Utes series. It ran for 16 years and had some pretty good field numbers and you don't see or hear of any nowadays. What happened to them all? Maybe it's time for a bit of V8 Utes sleuthing. got a funny feeling there's plenty of them that got wadded up over the years, judging by some of the crap <laughs> that I commentated back in the day on the Channel 7 days
1: yeah I was going to say i reckon that i reckon the amount that were written off would probably outnumber the ones that are left <laughs> yeah. they've got to be they've all got to be around somewhere I think a few of them do get out and about at various events there's, do I remember right that there's been a couple of attempts to run them at like a state level or yeah like I,
0: that? I think it's um uh up at Winton and the like with their uh ASA. some of those events there's been a few of them pop up competing there um But when you think about it, 16 years of utes, a few different evolutions of Commodore and Falcon models in that time, plenty of reshells, big (laughs) piles (laughs) of written off cars over the years. There were some mammoth accidents in the V8 Brutes as it was originally that became V8 utes later on. So uh, look, if there's anybody out there with one of them that's maybe converted it back to road use or got it tucked away, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Because of course, the the cars that won the titles, the series-winning cars, uh, that adds to a bit of the um, special um, element of those cars. So, uh,
1: anyway. And some pretty big-name drivers have yeah. driven those utes over the years. I was looking through the our photo archive for something completely unrelated the other day and saw that Jason Richards raced one in the Trans-Tasman
0: Challenge. He did. Uh, from memory, it was the Sage car of Gary Baxter, and they had super-cheap auto backing in New mm. Zealand. So uh, JR with super-cheap backing a little bit of a strange thing didn't happen in supercars so uh yeah there's plenty of great history there and when you think about it v8 brute started in adelaide in 2001 and in fact i talked to grant denier about that very topic uh in the podcast which i recorded last week that's out next week because he was in the inaugural ute race up until the bit where the rear brake pads fell out of the car and he fired off into the wall head on and thought he was dead yeah that was a very bad accident was it not Uh, very glad we can all laugh about that now (laughs) Yeah, at the time he wasn't all that thrilled because it was Mm. a, uh, I think it was a situation of who's going to pay for this because that car was pretty badly uh, shunted up. Um, Next question's an interesting one from Shannon Lambert that I've never stopped to consider. Yeah, I hadn't either. Shannon asks, hey fellas, the Super 2 episode was pretty insightful.
1: Lots of little nuggets of interest from it. Thank you very much, Shannon. Here's my question. Did a polarizer car ever win Bathurst? I'm a little hazy as to when they were first installed, but is there a chance that the 87 Bathurst winner is a polarizer car? And of course, the polariser being the little um, molecular realignment device of crystals and resin that was fitted to Peter Brock's Holden dealer team um, road cars, which eventually led to his divorce from Holden and Holden dealer teams split from Holden at the start of 1987. And it is understood that they were, they were fitted to race cars from time to time oh, yeah, through that period.
0: Were. Yeah, yeah, they definitely were. I think, uh, I can't remember whether it was John Harvey or Larry Perkins had one on their car and they didn't know until it came undone and was rattling around in the footwell and they came into the pit lane and threw it out the window virtually to, to know what was going on. So I guess that means that the first ones that might have been installed on a race car were probably 1985 or thereabouts, but... I've got no idea if there was a polarizer mounted somewhere in that '87 Bathurst winning car. I guess someone from the team who worked there at the time might be able to shed a little bit of light on it. But uh, should uh, check the photo archives and see if
1: because I don't know how many under bonnet photos would have been taken of those cars that weekend. Because you remember they had security guards because of yeah. the alleged threat of um, alleged threat of sabotage or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think there was a, a couple of uh, mustached uh, fellows with shaved heads who uh i'm not sure where they were from or what their background was but they most certainly created a an imposing presence there to anyone who might have thought about getting up to any no, a bit of no good with uh hdt's operation that weekend but uh i guess but didn't they always say that the polarizer didn't work unless the sticker was on the back windscreen so that should be the giveaway if the sticker- that's true that was the antenna yeah that's right so
1: maybe it was fitted to 10 and not 05 maybe that was the problem
0: maybe that 's what got it through <laughs> uh, Kobe Collins asks uh which is the most successful Perkins engineering car from over the time well they built pretty much about fifty of the things, so um i 'm guessing it 's one of the Castrol liveried ones yeah i I guess it depends on what your definition of successful is. Um, the three Bathurst winning chassis are probably the obvious standouts, but For mine, I reckon the VL, Walkenshaw, the last VL that they built that won the 1990 uh, Nissan 500 Eastern Creek, it's also the same car that won the Sandown 500 in 1992. Actually, it pops up in our Racing the Lion book that we're releasing next week uh, a few times because it had a few different liveries uh, (laughs) over the years. But for mine, I reckon that's the most successful. What's your take? That's a pretty
1: fair point. I mean, when you consider the opposition that that car faced Throughout that entire period, it was against Turbo Sierras, the little uh, DTM-spec BMW M3s, the ones with the um, two-and-a-half-litre engine and the big wings, and, of course, the Nissan four-wheel-drive GTR that Larry loved so much and was so happy was in the category. And <laughs> um, and that and Larry's, that VL Walkinshaw Commodore sat on pole for the last Group A race in Australia.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Grand Prix in 92. Yeah, at Adelaide Grand Prix. Some of those Adelaide Grand Prix races, I was watching some of those the other day, they were barn burners and 92 was a was a really good year. Uh, this one's a bit connected to the question earlier on. Zach Bell asks, the last race at Sydney Motorsport Park 2 uh, didn't feature a 888 or DJ Penske car on the podium. When was the last time before Eastern Creek that this happened when neither team uh, achieved the podium with at least one of their cars on, on a podium? It's been a fair while. It has been a fair while it came at, the Gold Coast 600
1: in 2017. If you remember back to the Saturday race w- that was um, run in pretty mixed, greasy conditions, uh, that race was won by Chas Mostad and Steve Owen. And joining them on the podium was Tim Slade and Andre Heimgartner. In the BJR car. And then the... Uh, and they led much of, a big chunk of the race as well. Yeah. They that, very unlucky was, to win it.
0: Yeah. And that was Andre. Um, remember that he was added into BJR's lineup at Bathurst. So... He replaced Ash Walsh and ended up with a podium uh, next time out at the Gold Coast. So, uh, yeah, Cam Waters and Richie Stanaway on the podium there for Monster as well. So, Tickford times two and, and BJR times one. So, um, yeah, that's a long time ago that neither of those two powerhouse teams have put a car on the podium in a, a race in the championship. Uh, Matthew Long, he's got a track question. Any tracks in Australia that have not held around the supercars that we could see used in the future... And what cities without a current race have the potential to host a road track, i.e. street track? Uh, and has there ever been discussions in the supercars era of a track in or around Geelong? Now, a couple of years ago, there was a bit of chat around that, but I'm not sure how much of that was just the, the new mayor. Remember, it was Darren Lyons, Mr. Paparazzi, yeah. trying to rile up a bit of interest in Geelong, which was a good attempt because it got people talking. There was the Geelong 500 that was going to happen in the early 80s that uh, fell over at the last minute, but... I can't see that there's any other permanent tracks that haven't hosted a championship that could, given the track gradings and the and the licensing for, for tracks from the FIA.
1: Totally agree. And at, at this point, given given the extreme position that the that both the main game and, for that matter, Super 2 slash Super 3 have found themselves in this year and trying to identify circuits that they can race at logistically, um, when you look at circuits like Morgan Park, there's one one circuit that hasn't hosted any level of touring car championship? Actually, have they hosted a V8 touring car round? No, no, no.
0: Well,
1: if if they don't get a, get a look in at a year in a year like this, then I think it's unlikely. Um, and beyond that, there's not really up too many other tracks that have. With I guess, Basketball's
0: another one. To yeah, th- it's, but it's, it's track ratings. I mean, Wakefield yeah. Park has hosted the DVS before, but what there is different gradings of circuits with the FIA for their track licenses. And I think anything that's got the right license in Australia to host supercars is already doing it or has done it in the the recent past. And given the the global scenario at the moment, I can't see any new street races getting up for a long time. In fact, it's more a case of can we save the ones that we've already got rather than even dream up uh, any new ones, such as the, the predicament that we find ourselves in as a world these days. Um, Andrew Hayes has got the next question. Uh, Where do you think that Marcus Ambrose's BA Falcon, the two-time championship-winning Pertex Stones car, uh, sits in the top list of Falcon race cars? In his opinion, it's a very special car that ended years of Holden domination, and it most certainly did. It stopped the Holden Racing team in its tracks, uh, where does it sit in the pantheon of um, is that the right word uh, of the yeah, top yeah, powers yeah. of all time? You, you're the one who uses the big words in our office. I keep the simple stuff. Every <laughs> now and then, when I try to wheel one out, I have to be careful that I don't trip over. But I reckon that's that's in the top five Falcons all time in Australia. Surely, oh hands down. And you've got to think think back if if any anyone who's
1: listening was is of a similar age to me, they'll relate to this, but if you are at high school in that sort of 98 through to 2002 period and you were a Ford fan, you had a really hard time because the AU really just got clobbered by the VT Commodore and you'd roll up every Monday after a round and you'd just cop it. So the BA Falcons arrival... You knew exactly what that felt like. No, exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when the BA finally arrived and Marcus and
0: Co started winning stuff, it was great. So,
1: yeah, I'd rank that car quite high.
0: I reckon it's top five Falcon race cars for mine. True Blue, in no particular order, True Blue, Moffat Bathurst winning 77, Ambrose BA. It's got to be in that, yeah, it's in the top three or five for sure. Yeah. I mean, from the... What it did, as Andrew says, to end the Holden domination, uh, two championships, 20-something races, or have been, 25 races, I do get one, um, at a time when the championship was really quite competitive. Uh, and the, the other thing was, it's not like, Ambrose didn't drive a new car every year. He didn't have six different Pertec Falcons or four. He had two, one AU mm-hmm. and one BA. He drove two cars for five seasons with Stone Brothers. So it's not like, everyone can put their hand up and say, I've got a Marcus Ambrose Pertec Falcon. I've got one too. Me and my wife have got one life of Brian Speck. It's, it, <laughs> it is only two, an AU and a BA, and that's it. And the BA is the, the better of those two cars, without doubt. And, of course, James Courtney
1: has, has some history in that car. He raced it in the 2006 season. Of course, he was the driver that came in and replaced Marcus when Marcus decided to go to the US. And as we found out last week, that's the first car that the first V8 supercar Shane Van Gisbergen had a steer of at the end yeah. of 2006.
0: Yeah, on, on the lowdown when they were uh, sussing out the young Kiwi kid as to see whether he had what it took, and history would show that that was a pretty good take. Uh, but you, you did a great little story on that on our, our website uh, over the last few weeks. So if you haven't seen it, jump online on v 8 and have a bit of a, a read through of that. Uh, Ashley Hoff has the next question, and it does not have
1: mudguards. No, doesn't. He? Ashley asks, how's your open wheeler history? I'm curious to know about the Formula Atlantic, whoops, I mean Formula Pacific cars that they ran at the Australian Grand Prix just prior to the modern Formula One era. So the cars Ashley re- is referring to, there was an era where the Australian Grand Prix, of course, wasn't part of the Formula One World Championship and it was its own standalone sort of race. And in the early 80s, that race was held at called, called a Raceway and promoted and run by Bob Jane. And he attracted a lot of big international names to it, including Formula One drivers like uh, Nicky Lauda, Alain Prost, Keki Rosberg, some genuinely big names. And the cars that they'd raced were our premier open wheel category at the time, which was Formula Pacific. I think they were like 1.6 litre um, open wheel style cars. They were the same as what was being used in the US for Formula Atlantic. So all the young rising IndyCar stars, for example, Michael Andretti raced this, raced those types of cars. Uh, if you've seen the documentary Uppity on Willie T. Ribs, he was racing a Formula Atlantic car at Long Beach in 82. Um, so I know that much about them. If, <laughs> if, he's, asking, if he's asking where they all are, I, sorry, actually, I don't I don't have an answer. I'd love to own an um, early Rolt RT4, but that's about as far as I go. Yeah, well,
0: I mean, it's not a... Uh it's not been a focus of our history and our uh, research. We've been more focused on touring cars and and, and V8 supercars and and that style of car, but uh, there's plenty of them around in historic competition. And I know that in Victoria, uh, I've been keeping an eye on this on the quiet for a little while now. Uh, The Keke Rosberg car that he drove at Calder in the Australian Grand Prix is being restored uh, and is probably actually not all that far away from being completed. So, we've provided a few archive photos to the owners um, in their restoration project on that car to um, to try to make sure it's as accurate as it can be. Um, down all the little details, not just the livery, but um, anything that was within the cockpit or how things looked or where they were positioned. Um, so, yeah, a lot of those cars are in. you do see some of them at historic events, but it's not an area that we're focused in on and that we probably won't in the future. Um, occasionally there's a car every now and then, I guess, that pops up that... Uh, is of interest depending on who drove it or what it achieved or uh, whether there's an anniversary going on or anything like that. But uh, probably not going to swap to open wheeler history sleuthing if that's a term um, anytime soon. But I mean, have a bit of a Google around online. You'll find a lot of these cars uh, at historic events in in recent years. Uh, I will say I would love to know
1: which one and the fate and what the fate of the one that Brock drove. Where oh,
0: that has ended up. Was that the one that Prost won the Grand Prix in 82 in the Chevrolet wheels car? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Well, any of our, uh, I mean, we do not pretend to be open wheeler experts here. We've got a no. little knowledge, but um, there'll be someone out there that knows their rolls T 4 chassis numbers off the top of their head backwards, upside down. So uh, if you do know, uh, send us a message and um, we'll give you a plug and tell you how, uh, how tell the world how great you are with your Formula Pacific knowledge. Um, speaking of Brock's, uh, Brock today, sorry, Brock, if I've got your surname butchered there, but I've done my best. Uh, next question is from Brock. Where do you see the supercars calendar heading considering Victorian restrictions and border closures? It's getting increasingly hard to travel. Uh, yes. Anyone who's trying to predict what's going to happen is probably kidding themselves, but, um, I think we'll, if we get, we get these two Darwin's in, we get a Townsville double header, maybe sneak in a Queensland raceway on the way South get Bathurst in, that's probably all we're going to get. Maybe that Sydney final in December and I reckon that's a pretty good effort if that's as far as we get.
1: Well, when you consider that, what, half, more than half of the championships teams are based in Melbourne and with the way the restrictions are going, that's a lot of staff and personnel. Even though it's a cut down number, it's a lot of people to be, that are being away from their, their partners, their families, their loved ones for a long period of time. Um, not just the emotional cost of that, but also the financial cost, which I know um, teams and supercars have in some instances, split costs and various things. But yeah, I think I I would be very surprised if the supercars championship ran into December purely on that basis. And of course, again, it's a moving, it's a moving target. We don't, we, it'd be impossible to predict how the restrictions will change in five weeks' time once this current current set of um, lockdown measures run their course.
0: Yeah, way too hard to try to predict. Anyone who's making predictions um, is fibbing because things are changing so quickly and just when things started to look like they were coming right in Victoria suddenly it all turned to crap and everyone was bailing out of borders and there was things going on everywhere. So I think... And then Brisbane was fine. And then yeah, all of a sudden yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. And then it was fine again. Um, yeah. And they let everyone out of the hotel rooms in Darwin uh, recently. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see, but I think everyone um, has done an amazing job to do what they've done so far for those Victorian teams to um, make the dash, to get themselves into New South Wales to begin with and then move on. And as Will said... Um, you know, there's, there's people who've got kids, they've got partners, they've got uh, lives at home that they're away from at the moment, and they're basically doing it to keep our sport rolling. Um, and supercars is a huge part of Australian motorsport. It's a huge part of our identity as a sport. So if it was ever jeopardised or threatened, uh, I mean, we've seen, who would have ever thought that the AFL, the big behemoth of Australian sport, could be nearly brought to its knees uh, as coronavirus has just about done this year so if, if they're in pain, imagine what everybody else is like who doesn't have as big a TV rights deal and doesn't have as many um, fingers uh, permeating throughout the country in terms of, of their reach and, and the sheer size. So to all those people who are doing it tough from, you know, from Walk and and Dreddy United and Erebus and all the teams who've had to, to, to go away from home, um, thank you and well done. We really do appreciate it. I think as an industry, we all say the same thing and it's, something that we hope that they can uh, get some more races in and, and get home soon. And hopefully things settle down a bit so as um, they can come home before Bathurst and um, get back up to the mountain in October. And, and maybe things have settled by December that we can have a grand final at Sydney Motorsport Park under the lights or or something along those lines. But as Will said, it'll, uh, it'll change 48 more times before we get to the finish line on, on all of that. Uh, next question is one that I don't think we can answer, but we wanted to cover it off. Adrian Fuller is a massive Chassis fan. He is right up the alleyway of uh, the V8 Sleuth team. He says, can you give us a list of who is in what Chassis in the 2020 Championship and even perhaps Super 2 as well? Well, we'd need a whole podcast to do that. Definitely would. I think that'd be something that's probably more suited to a website story. I reckon we could probably do that. Do you know a writer who perhaps could piece something like that together? Oh, no, a (laughs) bloke. Same will. Yeah, that guy, yeah. Okay. Uh, Easier question, Adam Ray. What's the shortest race team in supercars, as in the shortest that they've been in the sport? He's referring a bit to 23 Red, who have been in and out in the space of, what, two and a bit years. Um, The one that struck my mind is Prancing Horse Racing.
1: Yeah, yeah. As we have talked about, we actually talked about them in the Super 2 podcast. They made their the supercars racing debut at Malala in 2001 at the super two round where they didn't actually take part so in the race right. meeting. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: And then they went to Bathurst in that beautiful Budweiser liveried car. And, um, I don't think they made it past 40 laps. They got shunted by Craig Lowndes at the elbow.
0: Yeah. Bit of that was it. Well, it depends on whose car you were driving at the time, whether you got shunted or shunted into, uh, but, that was it. Prancing horse Bud racing ended after that. So apart from teams who've come and done a one-off here or there, that's probably the shortest race team in supercars history, particularly in the modern era. Um, uh,
1: Especially Boyle, when you factor
0: in they built a car. <laughs> yeah, that's right. By all means send us in any other suggestions to uh, uh, to go on the list. Uh, John o Bykhoff next, uh, long-time uh, development series competitor. Bit of a loaded question. I've got a feeling here. Um, <laughs> what's the most successful AU Falcon chassis ever, either solely in supercars or combined between supercars and DBS? He would have thought that the 2005 Super 2 Wakefield Park Race 2 car was pretty good. Of course he would. His dad drove it. (laughs) Uh, But the reality is that if you look at the numbers, the most successful car in um, main game is also the most successful AU across both series, and it's from Queensland.
1: Yeah, it's one that we we know quite well off the back of doing the DJR car 40 Years of Cars book. Um, it's DJR AU11. So it's the car that Paul Radisic debuted in 2000 mm-hmm. and took it to victory at Sandown in, t- in 2000 as well. Very, um, certainly with me at school, very popular victory because <laughs> <laughs> I think it was the AU's first for that year. And then that car became Stephen Johnson's in 2001. That's the car that he drove to his first solo championship round win at Canberra, the Canberra 400. And he took it to a race win later that year at Calder, where he um, gave one M. Scaife a little bit of a um, bump and run at the first corner, if I remember
0: correctly. Well, no, no, it was the other way around, wasn't it? Didn't Scaife give him one and then Scaife got penalised? Oh, really? Yeah, By the way, Stevie got the win. <laughs> yeah, S- Scaifey got a, a a drive-through for it and he w- was not too happy. But the thing was, it, it won four main game races, but it won seven in DVS with Owen Kelly in the Fujitsu colours in 2004. So seven plus four is 11. And uh, I think he's that car's got him covered because remember that Mark Winterbottom's DVS car uh, won the championship in 2003, but it was fresh virtually from the end of previous year after Wayne Gardner had written off one of their cars uh it won eight races with Frosty in 03 and two with Greg Ritter in a one-off start at Malala in 2004 so it won 10 DVS races but none in the main game so the DJR AU11 um has the title as the most winning AU ever sounds good to me (laughs) particularly if you have that car in fact it's actually been advertised for some time uh in recent months on our uh, V8 Sleuth online showroom and Uh, only very recently, has disappeared because it's been sold. So uh, that's probably a little piece of history that the new owner may not have known uh, about that car. We'll get back to our chat in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that you're probably relying on Timken products whenever you fly. Timken products have been used since the early days of experimental aircraft flights at the turn of the 20th century, right through to the huge superliners that take us around the world these days. In fact, when your next flight comes into land, it's likely that its landing gear on the plane you're on contains Timken bearings. When a 500 tonne, yes, 500 tonne airplane, touches down on the runway, all of that load is transmitted to the ground through the landing wheels. And when those wheels touch the tarmac, they accelerate from zero to over 280 km per hour in less than a second and experience temperature changes from sub-zero up at 30,000 feet to extremely high heat under braking on the runway. Each year, Timken's vast experience sees more than 12,000 product designs on more than 400,000 active planes, adding up to 1 billion safe landings and allowing 3 billion passengers to reach their destinations. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 podcast this year. Now, it's back to our chat. Sean Tanner, now I have responded to Sean uh, personally, but we thought we'd... Run this question because it's an interesting one. He said, I'm planning on a garage wall mural, a giant photo, two and a half meters high by five meters long. Now, that's a good size mural. He Mm -hmm. said, What would be the most picturesque starting lineup from any Bathurst 1000 to use as a photo? And I say that because, of course, we have a massive photo library, our an1images.com website you can purchase photos from, or if you've got a particular thing in mind that's not on the website, uh, send us a note through the v with Facebook page or our, our website. Um, it depends what era, I guess, that you're into. But if I'm looking at you on your, your Zoom call now, our listeners can't see you, but uh, at your house that you've just moved into, if you said to your lovely wife, Jess, hey, I think a great idea would be a wall mural in, in, in a room. If she said yes, which I'm not sure that she would, uh, what <laughs> Bathurst starting grid lineup would you go for? To be honest, I reckon Bathurst 84. Big when band. you think of,
1: yeah, when you think of the, just purely from a visual perspective, a lot of um, brightly coloured race cars, a lot of balance between reds, blues, greens, yellows. It's just a very visually pleasing start. And I'm talking about the eventual race start, not the one that um, <laughs> where, <laughs> where Tom Walkinshaw didn't move and got shunted.
0: I think it's got to be one that's a colourful, bright day weather-wise. Mm. You can't have an overcast day. That rules out 94. Yeah, just, you know, that was more than overcast. It just mm. it just doesn't pop. It just doesn't look the part, but there's plenty of years where great weather has meant that, yeah, and I think you're right too. You've got to have, it's got to have a blend of colour. I mean, mm. if they're all white and blue cars in the first few rows of the grid and they all look a bit same-same, uh, that doesn't really uh, float the boat, but... uh I think something uh, of that mid to late 90s period um, for something different, I reckon a super touring grid because it'd capture people's attention because it'd make them double glance to see
1: what, what's that. Yeah, what's
0: going on? And why don't the cars go all the way down the back of the grid?
1: <laughs> when you sent through the list of questions and I saw this, I did smile because it triggered a memory that I hadn't thought about in a long time. You remember the, the Channel 7 broadcasts of Bathurst in the late 80s, how um, there'd be a backdrop and it would actually be a shot of one of the previous year's starts.
0: Yeah, I do.
1: So I want to say in 2004 or 2005, one of those turned up on eBay. Bullshit. Really? No, it absolutely did. The one from the 88 coverage, which was a shot of the start of the 87 race.
0: Oh, wow. How much did it? Did, did you put a bit in?
1: I really thought long and hard about doing so because, <laughs> you know, it, it was genuine like full wall size. Cause I mean, it was a broadcast backdrop. Yeah. Um, I think it was around the $300 mark and I just couldn't oh, justify it. I could have 300
0: bucks <laughs> with you. Yeah. Oh, I, I always wonder how that stuff gets out the back door, whether it was, it was going to be junked out of the channel seven studios and someone took it home or, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Isn't it? I wonder where that ended up. If any of our listeners bought that off eBay, uh, Tell firstly, us. well done. <laughs> yeah, firstly, well done. No, uh, you can't sell it to us for an inflated price. Uh, and C, take a photo and tell us more. I'd uh, be very, very interested to know. Um, Craig Kondo has the next question. What happened to Fabian Coulthard's 2010 Bathurst Bundaberg Red Commodore that barrel rolled a few times through the chase on the opening lap? Well, Craig, it might not surprise you to learn that the car never raced again
1: after, after that incident, but it was rebuilt, so once it was rebuilt, it actually became a pit stop challenge car the following year. You think if you remember, um, Fabian Coulthard ran the, um, ran a black Bundaberg rum livery that year and at various race events throughout the year in the, um, in the sort of paddock area, you could actually have a go at changing the wheels on the car. And it was that car. It was the car that he'd rolled the previous year at Bathurst.
0: Yeah. And it was repaired by the team at Welcome racing, Um, and it's actually now in the hands of a private collector who I think holds the longer-term ambition uh, to restore it to its Holden Racing Team livery, how Garth Tander had previously raced that car um, before Fabian got his hands on it and barrel-rolled it through the chase. But that's probably its most famous moment uh, of undressing uh, at high speed, as it shed just about every panel that it, it had previously had on it before it tipped into the chase. Uh, Matthew Davis has the next question, and this is an interesting one, Will. This this could, this this could has got a bit of to and fro about it. Yes. Matthew asks, will you do a podcast
1: with Russell Ingle? And if so, will you accept an invite to appear on Enforcer and the Dude if the offer is made? And he adds in brackets, maybe when we're out of the virus, but it could also be done on Zoom or Skype too, as we are now.
0: Uh, what do you reckon? Um... I don't know. Uh, I've never stopped Could, really. We've got a long list of people to go through. Uh, has Russell done a podcast with anybody else in Rusty or? I don't anybody? believe so. I don't, I don't think he has. So I don't know whether he would want to or doesn't want to. I'm not sure. He'd make a great podcast, one, because of, because of his,
1: like, his personality, obviously. But also, it'd just be good to do a podcast on his years before he came back to Australia, all his years in Europe when he was trying to make it to F1. That's a fascinating story in itself.
0: And that's probably the stuff that he doesn't get asked about enough. He probably gets asked about the same stuff over and over about the Shriek at the Creek and winning the championship for Stones and Bathurst wins with Larry, which is all good stuff. But, um, yeah, open wheeler stuff. He raced against some bang-on big names who've gone on to amazing things. So he, uh, a bit like, it reminds me of the Will Davison episode we did last year where we spoke in depth about his time in British formula three and formula Renault and racing against and with Lewis Hamilton and some of the big names that have gone on to, you know, win world championships in formula one and win grand prix. So uh, I'd be more interested talking to him about that stuff. So I guess we can only put out a, a message and see if he's, if he's keen. Um, I don't think though, that um, just because if he ever said yes to doing our podcast, that they would invite me on their show. Um, yeah, I
1: don't think that's how it works.
0: <laughs> I don't think that's how it works and right now. Uh, getting into the the, the Norwell Motorplex is a small problem, given I live in Victoria, it's in Queensland, and we're not allowed to go beyond uh, five kilometres. So I'm probably a few thousand kilometres short of being able to take up an invitation. Um, But if they ever asked, I would be happy to do it, but I don't think they would ask. I think they've got more people in mind to uh, have a chat to, but you never know. Um, Next question is, in fact, Will, our Castrol question of the week. We should get a sting made for that just for fun, don't you reckon? Yeah, why not? I think I know a voiceover guy who could do one. No, no, no. I don't want to do it. <laughs> like, yeah, Let's like, let's get Lockie Hume or let's get someone else to do it, you know. Why not? Sure. I'm nodding for those who can't see this oh, podcast. I was going to say that they can't see you. So our question of the week comes from Zach Dowdle and he says... We get a, we, we're getting lots more questions, by the way. Will about um, certain motor racing archive material being released um, for broadcast? Is it any chance of putting out the Gold Coast kart slash Champ Car races on DVD? Or would that be a problem with American licensing? It's an interesting
1: question. I'm going to assume, judging by the fact that. Um, IndyCar Indy series has uploaded a bunch of old kart era races to their YouTube channel and to their Facebook page in recent years that suggests that they now own the rights to that vision um, so I guess they'd be the first point of call
0: yeah it's a good question uh, they would be absolutely first point of call um, because there's been so much fracturing in American Open Wheeler racing over the years there was of course cart IRL cart became champ car as a brand after cart basically went bankrupt. Of course it all got back together down the track and we're all, it's all under the IMS um, uh, banner these days. And of course, Roger Penske the main man there. I guess the other thing is you've got the channel nine era of the gold coast, which was the first five years, 91 to 95 and then channel 10 broadcast it from 96 to 2006. And then, What do we only have two more, uh, a champ car race and an IndyCar non-championship race with IRL cars that was on seven in 07 and 08. So um, first point, I'm pretty sure that nine have got those IndyCar races on file. Um, If you think back,
1: nine actually released on VHS. So this is going back a bit. (laughs) That first year's Sunday, all like all the races from sunday their sunday coverage of that 1991 event so you could see the supercars, you could see the oscar the nascar and the champ car or the kart race so they have, have commercially released stuff before
0: yeah i mean that's a long time ago and, and i think the world's changed a bit in terms of who owns what these days but mm. um i'd be keen I, something i have thought about in the past because of course there's the the support races uh v8s were there in 94 uh, Oscar NASCAR was a regular there There were some celeb type races There was supercars. There was um, Thunder Sports Thunder Sports Which were sports sedans at the time And uh, a couple of Group A cars Yeah, yeah A few in there The BMW M3s were in there And Kevin Waldock Sierra And a bit of that stuff coming yeah. on uh, And you had also uh, Super Touring in 95 was there So uh, I think it's unlikely that Channel 10's era stuff would remain um, uh, but I think it's half a chance that the channel nine era stuff might remain. So definitely be one to look into for a future classic Australian motorsport DVD release. Um, but he's right. Uh, Zach's question from the start would, there'd be a bit of, um, discussion to be had offshore, uh, in the U S with rights and, and the like, but I guess given that Roger Pensky now in control of all things speedway, uh, at least it gives us someone with an Australian connection that we might be able to, uh, uh, twist his arm a little bit and convince him to do it. The other thing that I would love to do, Will, and I think you would be a keen fan of this, uh, is clearly a deal would need to be done with Nine for the vision, but then also with Liberty to tick it off, is to bring out the Adelaide Touring Car Grand Prix races on DVD. Totally
1: agreed. I think that's a sensational idea.
0: And I know I'll, something- get,
1: I'll get Chase Carey on the phone now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people say, oh, yeah, but they're on YouTube. Well, we don't work in that world. Um, we do things properly. Uh, and I know there's a lot of people who upload things. They're not deriving a commercial income from them. But uh, when it's, it's not your item or there's not clear, when there is clear ownership, uh, it's something that I don't feel comfortable with doing unless I've got the permission of the people involved. So um, from a commercial release point of view, we have to do it properly and, and that's the way we do things. So plenty for us to look into there. Uh, thanks, Zach, for the question. It's a ripper. And yours is our question of the week, thanks to Castrol, because Castrol is more than just oil. It's liquid engineering, and Castrol provides the oils, fluids, and lubricants for today and the future for every driver, every rider, and every industry. Follow Castrol on Facebook to stay across the latest in motorsport. They've got exclusive competitions and much, much more. So ripping question that, but uh, David Howard is uh, up next. And he says, how about some of the strange incidents over the years to chat about on the podcast, like HDT, I think he means HRT, uh, throwing a bucket of water onto the windscreen at Sandown to clean the screen, only to break it, as (laughs) Thomas Mazira would well remember from uh, 1993. But there's been some weird stuff. I reckon we could put together a pod with a pile of that sort of stuff. We come across that sort of thing surprisingly
1: often. Yeah, I reckon a strange but true podcast would be a goer. We'll, We'll start making some
0: notes. Just um, keep the bucket of water down. It'll uh, drown out the audio equipment. <laughs> uh, Michael Burson, has the sleuth ever driven a supercar? And if so, what are the details, including any photos or vision? Well, I can tell you there's no photos and there's no vision because I've never driven one. So that's an easy answer to that. Uh, I'm presuming you haven't either? No, nah, the closest I've come is the passenger seat. Uh, I have
1: driven like a rally school car and that's about it.
0: Yeah, I've driven a, a Spectrum Formula Ford at Calder. Um, That's cool. I couldn't fit in it. They had to take the seat out. <laughs> and I was rolling across the floor. Uh, one of my You are tall. Cars. Well, uniquely, it was, a, uh, it was a day where they had some journos having a driver some Formula Fords out at Calder on the short track. So this was a Bosch Batteries Factory Spectrum, one of Mike Borland's cars. And it was a Mark Winterbottom car uh, from memory, and I borrowed one of Will Davison's spare helmets, which made Michael Borland double take when I drove past, because <laughs> he was previous used to seeing previously Will's helmet in a rival car, it was now in one of his, but it wasn't Will, it was just me, uh, which you should have been able to tell by how fast I was not going. Um, but no, I've never driven a supercar, I've been for a ride in plenty of them over the years, um, which has been a great thrill, but I've uh, never been let loose in one, and Oh, look if someone offered and there was the opportunity i'd be up for it but uh, it's not something that i actively go and try to seek out or or make it happen uh, i think it's important in life to know your limitations so yes uh, very very true chris garwood uh, has the next question we're racing through them will we've got plenty of them uh, any updates on super utes can we expect to see them with an ls engine in 2021 now they've they'd already pulled the pin really on the guts of this year before coronavirus happened, hadn't they?
1: Yeah, that, I think that is like, it was certainly something that was being discussed towards the back end of last year but, um, that they would take the category in a very different technical direction by adopting V8 crate motors. Um, yeah, I guess we'll, like everything in Australian motorsport, things have gone quite quiet. Because of the situation we're all in, I guess we'll see whether they can get a series together for twenty twenty one. I sincerely hope so, because I think they those cars with crate motors with V eight motors would be a much more exciting proposition than what they were.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I think that'd be something that the fans would connect with and resonate with. Something that's uh, it's got to be loud, it's got to be proud, it's got to be uh, in your face a little bit. And I think that that's where they're aiming to get the the Super Ute category. So. uh, no, fingers crossed. I think that'd be a, a good thing to see at least that investment that teams made in those cars over the last couple of years um, be able to go on and, and do something with them.
1: For sure. And I think that like in terms of model updates and like panel updates, I don't think that there's been any significant change or any will be any significant change in the next couple of years. So there's definitely the scope to get a bit more life out of them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, John Harmon's question, where did the missing HRT VP Commodore from Bathurst 93 finally end up and how on earth did you manage to track it down now uh, this was a story we wrote on our website going back a couple of years when we were researching the Holden Racing Team car's history book that things didn't quite line up the numbers of chassis and the what was what where there was a car that had disappeared it just didn't exist but then something clicked one of the cars was renumbered ah uh, classic <laughs> Yes. So uh, remember when um, uh, Thomas Mazira had his uh, ride on the wild side at Winton in 93, when oh, yeah. loaded by John Bowen, and then they all cannoned into one another, and I think Alan Jones jinked to avoid and he wiped out Thomas who four wheels, dukes of hazard spec launched on the grass. So that put that car out of business. So for the next round at Eastern Creek, they had a new car. Well, it was reported as a new car. It looked and seemed like a brand-new car, but it was actually one of their previous VNs that had been um, rebuilt from um, previously having to hold an engine, having a Chev put in it, uh, and it, it swapped identities. Uh. That's why it was felt that there was a missing car when actually there wasn't. The car that uh, Thomas crashed was repaired later in the year and returned to service. So uh, in the end, John, there wasn't a missing car. It, well, I'll tell you what was the thing that helped click that together was our good friend Ben, uh, ben Eggleston, um, who has uh, been a, a fiend for racing history like us for many, many years. Um, he's the custodian of a range of paperwork relating to some of those old HRT cars. And in among the paperwork um, relating to those cars of that period it clearly showed and had a mechanics um, couple of notepads and sheets that referred to that car, uh, the chassis that had been sitting around for some time, uh, being brought back and specced up for the rest of that 93 season. So it made, it totally clicked into place which car was which and how that it all came to be. So the missing car wasn't missing. It's just that it was under a different number uh, that made it look that way. But we got to the bottom of it and we wrote a book about it. And it made total sense that that would is what would have happened because
1: they weren't exactly a team that was flushed with funds at that time, that period.
0: No, and it was a car that had sat around, I think, for for the best part of a year, dilly. So, um, and they had a few different cars in that time, but luckily we were able to piece all the pieces of the puzzle together before the years go too far down the track and we we lose track of these things. Uh, before we jump on to the next question, I've got to send a shout-out to some guys who you know, I know, everyone knows if you follow supercars from over the years. The guys, the Russells from Newcastle, Wayne Russell, um, his young blokes, Aaron and Drew, who've raced in supercars for many, many years, they are go-karts go. Remember them on the supercars over the years? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I tell you what, if you're in New South Wales and you're looking for someone to have a bit of fun because you're not locked down like uh, you and I, uh, head to go karts go Broadmeadow Nelson Bay Cameron Park and Hunter Valley uh the Hunter Valley site is great because not only have they've got karts and we love kart racing they've got a new mini golf course there well, it's been around for a little while but it is based on Bathurst it is called Mount Patarama that's great. <laughs> excellent i thought that was good that's good it's a replica of the Mount Panorama circuit just as a mini golf course. So if you're looking for something fun to do, head to the website, gocartsgo.com.au, tell Wayne and the guys there that you've heard it on the V8 Sleuth podcast, and then we can tell them that we send them there, basically. <laughs> and of course, Wayne, a touring car privateer in the nineties in an old VL, then a, an ex-Lansvale car, uh, did some GTP racing in the, the years after that. And of course, uh, Drew and Aaron in the DVS for a long time. And, of course, Aaron ended up in the main game there for a little while. And they, they ran that wildcard entry a couple of years ago at Bathurst as a family team and did a great job and finished, what was it, 15th, I think, on the lead lap. Um, really, really solid job. So a little bit of a shout-out to the Russells at Go-Karts Go from the V8 Sleuth podcast. If you're looking for something to keep you entertained in the next few weeks and months, uh, go and have a spin. The Hunter Valley track's 850 metres. So there's plenty of uh, racetrack there to, to play around with. Next question from Duncan Ben. How do you think a NASCAR chassis based series
1: would be received here? We are, we were, slash are on that path already.
0: Um, what do you reckon? It's an interesting one. And Duncan's questions are longer, longer than we can probably read the whole thing out there. But uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because look, I don't think you can scrap what we've got in terms of the investment from a supercar perspective. Uh, and I'm not sure that a stock car series is what uh, Australians are looking for. But if you think back, bloody hell, Bob Jane and NASCAR Oscar in the early nineties, they were on it. Had touring car racing, not made the change to V eights NASCAR and Oscar. Remember it was starting to get on to more road courses beyond the Thunderdome. Mm. It had got to Oran park to Eastern Creek, gold coast, Indy car track. it was drawing crowds at those events as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you put some stars, uh, look, I think the reality is that it's where the stars play. And I had this thought the other day when I read this question, I'm not sure you could start from scratch again in terms of the hardware that supercar teams have got, but a NASCAR style based series. And of course we're not going to have an oval track race, um, loud, fast, relatively cost effective, uh, secondhand market out of the States with the ability to do things here yourself I think it's wherever the stars go is where people will look. If if tomorrow supercar, like I don't think this will happen, but if tomorrow Supercars was full of drivers who at the moment are running 20th, 21st, 22nd as the stars and you took the stars of Supercars and put them in a new series with NASCAR-type cars, that would be the new series to follow. I mean, it's World Series cricket spec. You, eventually, it's where the stars go. But it's such an interesting concept. I don't think it's because... Um, Pensky and Andretti are involved in supercars that make the connection that some fans might do, but in terms of a uh, a NASCAR style stock car with limited arrow, um, big. I mean, you saw the Gold Coast when they wheeled out that Joey Logano NASCAR from Team Penske. Was it last year or the year before? Mm, uh, Eighteen. McLaughlin, and McLaughlin and Coulthard were let loose in it. Fans were on the fence like you wouldn't believe. The thing made an awesome noise. Um, If we had to start again from a technical platform point of view, I could think of worse things to start with. Sure. I don't
1: necessarily think just copying whatever NASCAR does for the upcoming Gen 7 would be the way to go because, of course, they work on massively different economies of scale and costs to what we're capable of doing here. But make it simple make it loud make it fast make it exciting to watch and um people will follow
0: Yeah, it takes me back to those days of um speaking recently to, to kim jones on the uh, motor focus model podcast that we produced for for motor focus the model car um, business in queensland and he and brad were the first to ever buy a customer hendrick motorsport nascar their first nascar was a a Chevy Lumina that Ray Evanham sold to them uh, when he worked at Evanham. So um, uh, when he worked at Hendrix, I should say. So uh, we saw in the past that real tie up from um, American hardware ending up here in Australia. Can't see it happening, but it's a really interesting question that Duncan poses. For sure.
1: Next question from John Stryker. Tony Cochran stated in the late nineties that the then called FIA, AI-1000 Classic was creating its own traditions in history, completely separate from the traditional Bathurst 1000 event they no longer competed in. And Channel 10 themselves advertised the 97 Primus 1000 Classic as a new race that Australians can call their own. So why, John asks, then in 2019 are we... Not cel- were we not celebrating the 23rd running of a 1,000-kilometre race at Bathurst for the Supercars organisation?
0: I, I think it's a case of if it looks like, smells like, quacks like, walks like a Bathurst 1000, it is a Bathurst 1000. I think it's got to pub, pass the pub test. I understand um, what John's saying and, of course, that whole split of super touring, V8 supercars going off and doing their own thing, Channel 10 rights, that's for a whole other podcast. Um, but the fact is the two liter race and its incumbents of channel seven and the ARDC that ended, they didn't run a 1000 K race in 99 and that event as an event died at the end of 99. So um, I think it may, I mean, so by his reckoning and I've seen this from some people online that once the ARDC Bathurst ended, then the Bathurst 1000 ended and the race after that is another race. I can understand the, um, technicalities behind that but i don't think it passes the pub test as to you know how many times is jim richards a uh, Bathus or mark for Bathus 1000 winner versus a winner of Bathus 1000 kilometer races uh i think it's sort of shelling peas and um yeah it wouldn't pass the pub test what's your take
1: well you look at how um you look at the history of rugby league where it had its very clear divide in 90, ironically in the same year, 1997 yeah, yeah. between the ARL, which was the sort of traditional Sydney based clubs um, and the news corporation fund or the New zealand funded super league ev- effectively same situation had two completely separate leagues with two completely different premiers. History now sort of looks at both equally and regards them both as premiers regards the line of rugby league history is stretching back through the current era era back through that split competition era and back through to the era that preceded that as time goes on the way everyone looks at history that evolves and it's been the same with the Bathurst 1000 we now consider all those races being part of the same rich line even if it's even if that wasn't the intent intent at the time
0: yeah and i think john further points out that well when supercars the supercars never purchased the rights to the Bathurst 1000 um, as happened in the case of the 12 hour. So um, why does the super cheap auto 1000 these days get referred to as the same race as any that happened on the October long weekend and their histories have been merged when in reality, they are very separate events. And I think you've answered that exactly how I would view it as well. That over time, um, you know, things did, I mean, if we were still dealing in two separate worlds of two 1000 K races at Bathurst, then this is probably a discussion that would have a lot more legs. But we only have one race. There's no competing races. It's the race that carries on the history. Um, I think he's pointed – I mean, the Bathurst 12-hour is different in that it was the one event. The rights were purchased and moved on. You could probably argue that should the Bathurst 12-hour of the 90s at Easter, um, promoted by Vince Tesarero and Force Field Marketing – uh, should they be counted in the same history as the revived 12 hour in 2007 onwards uh, under the different ownerships that it's had? Because it, it, the only thing it shared in common was the name, and um, I'm sure that there wasn't a deal done to acquire the name. They just started running about as 12 hour again and uh, picked up the history. So I think the, the point of it all is I take John's point uh, on, but um, and yes, Tony Cochran did say that at the time, but he also did say that there's no sacred site. So history would say that. Uh, Tony, by his own admission, it should be pointed out, uh, was wrong on a few things. He was right on a lot of others. But I think if it um, looks like, smells like, feels like a Bathurst 1000 to the man at the pub, it's a Bathurst 1000. Uh, and, and I don't think you could tell any drivers who've won that race uh, since the late 90s onwards that they haven't won a Bathurst 1000. I think they would argue very strongly. Be, be a run, very short conversation, I think. Yeah, yeah, with a few uh, expletives probably inserted. Uh, nearly finished. Home straight, on the way to the finish line. A couple of quick ones. Adam Blatman says uh, he'd love a podcast on the history of HQ Racing or the Commodore Cup Series. Uh, maybe we could blend those together as a one-make Holden series or podcast or something. There'd, there'd be a little bit to talk about, I'd say. Well,
1: you think of, you think of just how big HQ Racing got just purely from a competitor standpoint, but from a, like a wider public sort of viewpoint. HQ Racing made it into Neighbours.
0: It did too. But the other thing is David Boone raced to HQ, as you reminded our readers on the website earlier in the year. If you haven't read the yarn, jump on our website, just jump in the search bar and type David Boone and you'll find it. (laughs) It'll be Uh, the only story that comes up. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Uh, So, yeah, plenty of history. HQ Racing on the Thunderdome, plenty of um, interesting names over the years have competed in it. And Commodore Cup, I loved Commodore Cup. In the mid-90s, when that really got rolling, um, ROH Wheels, Commodore Cup, it supported some Super Touring and some V8s over the years. Uh, again, it was a place where a lot of drivers came through. Um, Jeff Emery won the title, I think, five or six times all up in mm-hmm. the end. And uh, I think Commodore Cup is uh, a pretty cool part of history. There are some good names over the years in that one. So you Lee never Holdsworth. Know. The Holdsworth boys. Both yeah. Lee and Brett were both Commodore cuppers. Christian degostin. Gostin. Uh, Tim Shaw ended up in the future tourers. Uh, Marcus Zakanovic yeah, product of that as well. Yeah, definitely. Marcus was in among their trading paint and fenders with plenty of them. Matt Coleman spent a bit of time in there as well. Uh, Dean Crosswell, who ended up in V8 Supercars. I think, I think Maddie ended up driving and owning the ex-Dean Crosswell car, actually. So, uh, yeah, there were some interesting names who had a run in that over the years, and I'm sure that there's plenty of stories to tell. Uh, Paul Smyth has got a question here, uh, Will, and he says, can you set up streaming access to your video content? DVDs are so outdated. Now, I've got to tell you, Paul, I agree with you. Uh, I love the DVD. I love its capabilities and I love what it's done for us over history of what, the last 20 years. But I do agree that a streaming video content library of Motorsport Archive material uh is something I've thought of quite a long time ago. Um, I have had some discussions with the relevant rights holders. Uh, there are a pile of hurdles um, and elements to uh, work our way through, but we we'll, we've talked about this in the office plenty of times. Uh, I'm trying to make it happen. Uh, it's not as easy as uh, our fans and our listeners would probably think, but I reckon the Netflix and motor racing would be pretty cool. Totally agreed. But like you said, there's a lot
1: of moving parts in this. Not just not just series that own their rights, still own their rights, but the fact that so many different television networks have broadcast Australian motorsport over the years. Channel Seven, Channel, as we just discussed, Channel Nine, ABC, SBS. It would be good, though.
0: It would be, and one of the things that it falls into is um, is rights and who owns certain rights. There's some things that just because they aired on a network doesn't mean that the network owns the rights. It's the original production company or it's the, the racing category that established it. Um, but I've had plenty of chats, particularly with one of those networks that you have discussed there and mentioned in your list. And I, I reckon if you pieced it together, you could probably figure out which one. Um, I'm keen, I've put together a proposal and an idea of how it could work. But uh, unfortunately, uh, nothing's come over the finish line just yet. But Paul, don't worry. We will keep working away on it. Uh, Corey States, our resident food expert, will. Uh, what's the best way to cook a steak? I'm personally a barbecue man, but what do you think?
1: Nah, totally agreed on the barbecue. Um, medium rare to medium rare is my personal preference, but it's up to it's up to the
0: end user. I feel. Uh, yep, I'm I'm yeah, medium to well done. I, I don't like it mooing still. Um, Last question from Hayden Arson.
1: I've been watching a heap of the Bathurst old classics and noticed a heap of three car, three car drivers in a car. Uh, besides the obvious of Peter Brock jumping into one of his other cars, has any other three driver combo ever come close to winning the great race? Uh,
0: yeah, actually, the, actually the next year from when Brock did it or one of the years he did it because he did it twice. Yes, <laughs> Yeah. 1988
1: when Dick Johnson entered three cars for the Bathurst 1000 and two of them were out before the end of the first hour. So the oldest car of the fleet car 18, that was originally for John Smith and Alfredo Costanzo to race. um, Smithy did the opening stint. And um, when he brought the car back into the pits for the driver change, it was John Bow that got in. And then after Bow did his stint, it was Dick that got in. So, um, they went on to finish in second place. So I think that's probably the last genuine three-driver team to finish on the podium at, in the Bathurst 1000.
0: Yeah. Off the top of my head. Yeah, I think you're right because the the last year they allowed those rules was 1991 and the nearest anyone with a, five, a three-driver lineup came. I think Tony Longhurst took over the second B&H car in 89 and I think they finished fifth. He and Alan Jones mm. at home. So... Uh, yeah, that was as close as anyone else got to, to grabbing a win with a three-driver combo. And you said Alfie Costanzo. He was in the paper this week. Did you spot that? Oh, was he? Yeah, he's selling his house in Doncaster. It's a mansion. It's huge. <laughs> it was in the really real estate know. pages of the Herald Sun on, I think it was the weekend just got. It might have been the weekend before. Every weekend seems like every other one at the moment in lockdown in Melbourne. But That's uh, true. Yeah, I, it caught my eye when I saw motor racing champion at the start of the sentence in the real estate pages of the Herald Sun. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's a question we get asked a lot about three driver combos at Bathurst. So it's uh, funny. One of the, probably one of the last three driver combos
1: is one that went sort of under the radar because in 91, as you said, that final year where you could do it, Mark Scaife not only won the race in car number one, but he also hopped into car number, the number two GTR at some point during the day and set the lap record.
0: Yeah, he did. And then it broke. So, uh, (laughs) But remember that if once you jump cars, you couldn't jump back. Mm. So they were lucky that Jim Richards didn't have a drama in the last stint in car number one because if he'd got sick or something weird happened and he had to jump out, then Scafi could, couldn't have jumped in. Could you imagine? Oh. That, that'd that be how the GCR lost the race. <laughs> I think Win Percy and Alan Grice would have been stoked with that. They would have got a win. Oh, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't. Hey, that, that's our Q&A questions. Thank you, everybody, for sending them in. Um, I know these episodes do run a little long, but we have so many questions and we want to deal with um, so many of them as we can. A quick shout out to our great friends at the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama. They're open six days a week. They're closed these days on Tuesdays. Um, But if you want to get the the latest in info on what's on there, head to the museum's Bathurst website. They've just added uh, a DJR Sierra wheel uh, on show there. The last of the DJR RS500 Cosworths as part of a Dick Johnson Exhibition, which is going to um, be building over the next few months and really crank up later in the year. So uh, that's one that I think fans will really be interested in having to look at as as the months tick by. Absolutely. And I sincerely hope that um, restrictions are eased on Victoria so I can go have a look at it myself. Yeah, I'm with you as well. Just before we go to great news, uh, just this week on Monday, uh, Bathurst going global, our 12-hour book, The Decade, uh, the GT era of the Bathurst 12-hour, 320 pages in colour. It's here. It's arrived from the printer. Uh, we're packing orders this week to our pre-order customers and to our, uh, our stockists, uh, our wholesaler stores around the country. If you haven't got yourself a copy, you need to get one, just 1,200 uh, copies of this book. results, uh, full results. Um, Chapters of each year's race with the review, Richard, uh, Richard Crowell's put that together, uh, and a photo of every car from every year's race, including all the non-starters. Uh, it's a really, really cool book that um, our team's put together, and it's something that there's not really any books out on the Bathurst 12-hour, and with its ever-growing status, uh, I think that's a book that people should grab for Father's Day or for Christmas moving forward. Jump on our website, bookshopv sleuthcomau order your copy now there's just 1200 get it 12 hour 1200 books available uh it's um it's a ripper and there's a lot of cars in there that i've forgotten about and you've probably forgotten about too no oh, totally i'd
1: forgotten how just how far into the gt3 era that production cars still raced or the fact that chas most its first race in a holden came at the Bathurst 12 hour
0: <laughs> yes it did too in a, one of those little uh, VXR Astras. So, uh, yeah, grab yourself a copy, Bathurst Going Global. It's our new book, hardcover, colour, 320 pages, all the stats, all the results, all the reviews, and uh, a shot of every car. So if you competed in the 12-hour between 2011 and 2020, uh, grab yourself a copy, stick it on the bookshelf, and uh, you can and show grab three right right? for your mates. Yeah, exactly right. You can uh, you can cry to them uh, till the cows come home about the time that you raced against Bern Schneider or something like yes. that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. You haven't. Uh, Some of our listeners may have done it. Grab yourself a copy. That's enough of the plugs. Uh, Will, as always, a pleasure. Well, bold. Next week on the podcast, it's a sit down with Grant Denya. We'll do another Q&A episode in upcoming weeks. Great feedback to our Super 2 Series podcast. Uh, I'm thinking of another category that we can do another one on. I'm going to suggest to you 2 liter Super Touring. What do you reckon? Ooh. I like that. I like that suggestion. Let's lock that one in. All right, so let's lock that in. Grant Denier next week on the v Podcast, Powered by Timken. The following week, uh, later in August, we'll take a look at the history of two-litre super touring. In the meantime, though, on behalf of the whole team, this is Aaron Moon and Will Dale signing off. See that? But signing off. Almost got up into the Mike Raymond off you there. Uh, we'll join you again for another VH League Podcast, Powered by Timken, very soon. Have a great time this week, and we'll chat to you next week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rejo to oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rejo, the number 2, and oil and find out.